up on today's show, we'll chat with Alberta's Minister of Children's Services, Rebecca Schultz, about the federal government's plan for a national child care program. What does the future look like for the cannabis industry in Canada? And one year ago this week, the oil industry was shocked as trading moved into negative pricing. Obviously, things much better now. Where are we headed? The centerpiece of the Liberal budget unveiled on Monday, of course, was the national $10 a day child care program within a few years. Uh, far from being a done deal, one of the biggest hurdles already proving to be provincial buy-in. It's a program that needs, of course, the provinces to, to, to get on board with it, uh, involving the feds and the provinces. And Alberta's Premier and Finance Minister both already saying there are some serious issues around that. So let's get a little deeper into that topic. Joining us now is Alberta's Children's Services Minister, Rebecca Schultz. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, lofty goal, national $10 a day child care, uh, for sure. The Premier has raised more than a few issues, as has the Finance Minister. What was your initial reaction to what you heard in, on Monday? You know, I often say that there are lots of things that I disagree with the federal government on, but the importance of child care is one thing that we absolutely agree on. We know that this is an important part of our economic recovery, both for Alberta families, but also uh, right across Canada. And so I am looking forward to negotiating with the federal government, but what we are looking for is flexibility to meet the needs of Alberta child care uh, operators, but also Alberta parents. Yeah, when we take a look at that and the plan that's sort of put forward, and, and, and I guess it's a work in progress, but um, in terms of that flexibility, uh, the Premier's saying it's far too narrow. Um, what exactly would you like to see added to this? Right. So I think, you know, one key piece is that child care is an area of provincial jurisdiction. And so we do hope that the federal government uh, will respect that because what we're not looking for is a one-size-fits-all approach, um, especially right across the country, but also even here in Alberta. Children and families have different needs in different areas of the province. Uh, and so we have to be reflective of the choices parents are making. Um, and we're making even before the pandemic, but certainly now uh, with the situation that we're in. Uh, and we also have a uh, mixed system here in Alberta. So um, we have nonprofit, but we also have private centers. And so over 60% or the vast majority of centers here in Alberta, whether that's childcare, out-of-school care, or preschool, uh, are private operators. And so we want to make sure that uh, whatever agreement we come to also, um, you know, reflects that that difference because we're not looking at putting you know 65 percent or 60 plus percent of operators out of work or having them not be able to participate um or access any of these supports or their families access any of these supports um you know one of the things that struck me is okay the the federal government comes out with this plan and says this is what we're going to do and um the provinces need to work with us was there any consultation ahead of time? Did you guys have any idea uh, that this is what was happening? And was there any sort of discussion with your ministry or any other ministry in any other province in terms of what might work and what needs to be included? You know, we have had um, many discussions with um, the federal government um, just about child care in general. We did not know what this specific um, budget was going to look like. And in fact, we are not the only province that's saying we need flexibility here uh, in terms of how uh, and where we can invest these dollars. And so, um, you know, we, we didn't receive a briefing before be- before budget. Um, and even now, we still don't have details. We don't know what the dollar amount is. Right. You know, you even mentioned that this is going to, um, you know, be investments over the next five years and beyond. We don't know what that looks like. Uh, we don't know what the parameters are. We don't know, like I said, what the dollar amounts are. And so we're hopeful for flexibility. And, um, you know, certainly was not aware of a $10 a day plan. 
Um, you know, like the finance minister said, you know, it would be better to just give us the money and let us set up a plan that works for Albertans. I think that's probably too much of an ask. I don't think the federal government would do that. Um, but in terms of uh, the cost sharing, like you say, we don't even know exactly what that looks like. But, uh, you know, shift work and, and as you said, it, okay. it's, not, it's not one size that fits all. Can that be done? Can that be done? A plan that will work for everybody who's involved in so many different, um, you know, work and lifestyle choices? You know, I think I'm hopeful. We have to look at what decisions parents are making. And so even here in Alberta, uh, a recent report just suggested that affordability is the third consideration that parents look at when they are um, making decisions about child care for their children. Um, you mentioned overnight care, right? There, um, before February, we didn't have overnight care here in Alberta. Uh, and so we heard this a lot in Fort McMurray. We've also heard it in Calgary. And then we had 13 communities across the province say, hey, we have a need for that. Um, we need to make sure that that type of child care is affordable for parents who need it, right? Nurses, firefighters, mm-hmm. those working in, in, in industry. Um, you know, some parents are using preschool um, right now if they're working from home or they're working part-time, or it's also just an exceptional um, educational opportunity for, for young children. So, you know, we already here in Alberta, we're not disagreeing with the importance of child care. In fact, we have the highest wage chop-ups in the country for early childhood educators and child care centers. We have the highest subsidy rates outside of Quebec currently. Uh, we invest around $400 million a year in child care. And so, you know, I'm hopeful, again, that there's flexibility. But, um, you know, th- this is when we talk about flexibility, this is what it is, that, you know, there are parents who absolutely um, need access to affordable childcare to get back to work. There are also parents who, as you said, um, need access to things like overnight care or care with extended hours. Uh, And so we're just hopeful that there will be some flexibility for us to meet Alberta needs. And also, um, again, the mixed market is is a really important piece. So um, that's what we'll be looking for. Um, just as we're talking here, I'm taking a look at uh, our listeners are sending in texts, and, and, and the overwhelming sentiment from a lot of them, the majority of them, is, wait a minute, there are people who don't need this. There are people that can afford childcare, and at the same time, a lot of people saying, I don't have kids, why am I paying for another person's mm-hmm. childcare? Um, how important is that consideration in whatever plan you do come up with? Well, you know, even when there was a $25 a day pilot project here in Alberta, that even the the centers who took part in that pilot identified that they had families making three or six or eight hundred thousand dollars a year in household income um and then they would be accessing those spaces when families who really truly needed those supports then couldn't get into the spaces and so that's where we have consistently um targeted our supports to those most in need right now in alberta uh, for lower-income families, they can access childcare for as low as $13 a day um, in the center of their choice, which is even more important, right? That so we didn't pick which centers would be able to um, offer discounted rates for parents. We said, look, parents, you make the choice, and the subsidy uh, will follow you. And so now parents can, like I said, um, find childcare for as low as $13 a day. Um, but, you know, we will continue to look at data. We're going to make decisions um, based on that data. We also know that less than one in seven Alberta parents are, are currently using childcare right now. And, you know, to your point or to your listener's point, when we look at, um, you know, Quebec has had $10 a day daycare for uh, a number of years. Yes. 
But when you look at that, a family making $150,000 of household income in Quebec would pay nearly $16,000 more a year in taxes. So if you break that down monthly, that's more in tax in a year than an Albertan would pay for one child in childcare. Um, last one for me. Um, part of the concern I think that some people are expressing, and I think it's a valid concern, is if we sort of um, have resistance to this and we don't like the plan and we don't get on board with it, do we risk putting ourselves at a disadvantage if other mm-hmm. provinces do in terms of, I mean, we're talking about a lot of money for a lot of people and if you're starting a mm-hmm. career and you're starting a family mm-hmm. and you're taking a look at where you want to do that, um, it can make a significant difference to the bottom line every month. Do we need to make sure we have something? I mean, we can't completely reject this idea if other provinces get on mm-hmm. board. Well, and I will say, and I've said before, you know, I absolutely know that we are not the only province looking for flexibility. Mm -hmm. I also am a mom of two children. My children are five and three. So I can tell you that, you know, I certainly wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't have access to high quality childcare. I know how important it is for working families. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to continue to to work with my federal counterpart. I'm looking forward to these negotiations. Um, I have built a strong relationship over the last two years. And, um, you know, I, I want to, to make sure, though, that we can meet the needs of Alberta uh, child care, out-of-school care, preschool operators, but also re- respect the choices that Alberta parents are making. Yeah, make it a little more flexible. Uh, Minister, I really appreciate your time. I know you have to run. Uh, thank you for taking a few minutes with us this morning. Anytime. Thanks so much, Shay. Thank you. That Bye-bye. is uh, Rebecca Schultz, who is the Minister of Children's Services for the province of Alberta, talking about the National Child Care Program. Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, the cannabis industry in our uh, country and how things are shaping up. If you remember when um, legalization happened back in 2018, it was sort of everybody thought this was going to be huge. This was going to change everything and it was going to be a massive, massive industry. And uh, it ran into some stumbles out of the gate. Uh, things seem to have settled down a little bit now, but let's get a take on where we are and where we might be going in terms of cannabis in Canada. We have Kyle Murray joining us now. Kyle is the Vice Dean at the University of Alberta School of Business. Kyle, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, looking back to when this started, you know, I guess three and a half years ago now when we legalized marijuana, it was... Um it was uh, it was a big deal. Everybody thought this was just going to be a massive, massive growth sector. And I think it was for a little while, right? Yeah, well, I, I think it probably still is. I, I think the reality is there was so much hype um, and so much excitement about the potential of the industry initially that uh, it got a little overblown in what it would be in the first few years. But I, I think there's still lots of potential in the industry in longer term. Uh, I, I think we'll see a lot of growth here. Did we see too many people try and you know get in on the action too early? Like, did were we oversaturated in the industry for what we could handle at the time? Yeah, which I think is is really natural in a brand new market. You have a whole bunch of uh, new entrants to the market coming in, seeing the potential, believing that they have a good business plan, um, and then competition happens. And some uh, companies do better than other companies. Some uh, are able to rise to the top, and some fail. Uh, and that sort of you know semi kind of Darwinian process is is very normal um, in in a new market like this. Like, we have over 600 cannabis stores in Alberta right now, which seems like a lot. It's far more than any other province in the country. Do you expect that we're going to see some of those drop off as we go along here? And like you say, sort of survival of the fittest and will consolidate into a really solid market? Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably likely. Um, I think on the retail side, we, we have 
um, quite a bit of strength in Alberta. I think Alberta per capita sales are, are still at or near the top in Canada. Um, Ontario is going to have a lot more stores very yeah. shortly, so they're going to surpass us. Uh, but really what, what you're seeing with the 600 stores is the, the framework for um, cannabis in Alberta, which was a competitive one. So we created a competitive marketplace, so a whole bunch of people jumped in. Uh, you know, if I had to guess, I think we're probably going to settle out somewhere between four and 600 over the next couple of years. And that really depends on what demand looks like um, and, you know, whether the market grows and, and new consumers come into the market or if it sort of just settles out with the consumers we have. And, of course, the other big question is the legacy market or, or the illegal market mm-hmm. uh, and what happens there. I think people forget that the legacy market was full of a lot of hustling, entrepreneurial uh, people and organizations that did a pretty good job of customer service. So they're not going to disappear overnight. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to always say, you know, if, if you like Amazon could have copied their model because you can you can find their their product in any community anywhere in the country. They figured out systems of distribution. Like you say, they're, you know, in a lot of ways, a pretty solid going business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, it's kind of too bad we couldn't have studied that business yeah. uh, in a little more detail. But uh, for obvious reasons, it's hard to access. <laughs> okay, you're talking about retail. What about on the production side? Because we know there's a lot of that going on in in Alberta, as a matter of fact. Um, has that? Uh, we've saw some companies, Aurora. I'm thinking about uh, really having yeah. a tough go of it and things like that. Where's the production side of it standing right now? You know, I think production is going to be more challenging than the retail side because for a few reasons. One is, you know, I remember touring Aurora's gorgeous facility out by uh, the airport um, early on. And, you know, my first thought was, wow, this is very advanced in terms of the technology and the approach they're going to take to growing the plants. And then my second thought was, wow, this is going to be expensive. I wonder Mm -hmm. if they can get the margins they want when some of the competition is going to be growing just outside in the field. Um, And, you know, so I think some of those things also have to shake out. And, you know, where can you create a premium product and charge a little bit more for it? What's going to be the run-of-the-mill product? Uh, and then longer term, as the U.S. legalizes and Mexico legalizes, the, the pr- production side is going to become more global. Uh, and that's going to increase pressure as well. I still very much expect we'll have a, a local production industry in Alberta. Um, but it's going to be competitive. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about, like we've seen, you know, like New York, which is a massive, massive state, has now gone to legalization. They're talking about it in Mexico and things like that. So we're going to go from being one of the exceptions to the rule to basically everybody's on board. That's going to be another seismic shift in this industry. That's right. And, you know, when we first the industry first took off, we talked a lot about the first mover advantage and the opportunity that our producers and retailers have kind of learn the business a little, and then as the U.S. and other markets open up, move into them. Uh, The flip side of that, and uh, I've had a number of calls from New York and California in the last week, uh, the flip side of it is the second mover advantage, which is those states get to look at what we did in Canada, um, take some of the good, and avoid some of the bad. And and so their industries are likely to uh, take off very quickly as well. So the future of the industry in Canada um, still turbulent, or do you think we're getting a little more consistent now? And is it still, uh, you know, a potential growth industry? I think it is still a potential growth industry. I think we're going to continue to see some volatility on the retail side. It'll probably stabilize faster, um, and on the production side, we're, we're likely to see more consolidation. Companies getting bigger. Um, and focusing more on efficiency. But I, I think it's a good industry for Canada. I, I think we'll continue to see growth here. What about what the governments have done? Have have we seen, you know, things that government could have done better? Has there been changes? Is government doing what they need to do to make sure that this industry succeeds? 
Uh, I think so. You know, we don't always get a chance to, to pat the government uh, of Alberta on the back, but uh, this is one case where I think they did a very good job. Um, the way that they organized it, not perfect, but it, setting up a competitive market, uh, allowing it to be mostly privatized, managing the online portion, at least at the beginning, um, on the government side. I think all those were really good decisions, and I think we'll see uh, more competitive, uh, stronger retailers and producers, but especially retailers, as a result. And, and we'll see a similar thing in Ontario, whereas other more restrictive jurisdictions like Quebec, um, uh, the market is probably likely to stay, uh, a lot of the market is likely to stay in the hands of the um, legacy or illegal uh, players. You know, there was talk when this all started that it would affect, you know, alcohol sales and bars and things like that. Did any of that come true? Did we see any sort of effect on the alcohol industry? It's so hard to say because it's it, with the pandemic, that yeah. kind of threw all these things into a bit of uh, disarray. I, I know early on I would talk to some of the, the companies and, and consistently they would talk about this one example of they expected many um, suburban women in particular who drink wine to make the transition to cannabis. And when they said that, I, I would question them, really, you think that the book clubs <laughs> and, and others are, are going to switch to smoking? And they're like, yeah, yeah, and there's, they had some good reasons you know, for why they thought that would happen. Um, but those kind of habits change very slowly. And, you know, like you were just laughing as well. It's, it's hard to imagine yeah. that changing quickly en masse. So I, I think what we'll see is we will see a change over time. Uh, but there's certainly more of a stigma to cannabis use still than there is to alcohol use. Uh, and, and so that also will have to break down a little bit. Yeah, I, there's no doubt. Uh, a different in perception among the public out there, for sure. No doubt. Uh, good discussion, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. That is uh, Kyle Murray, who is the Vice Dean at the University of Alberta School of Business, talking about what's going on in the uh, cannabis industry in our With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. One year ago this week, you might remember, was a bit of a precedent-setting week uh, when it comes to the oil industry and the global oil market. And it's not a week that we ever want to repeat again. It's not one we'd ever seen before uh, as oil was trading negative values. Companies literally paying customers to take the oil off their hands. Obviously, things have improved dramatically. We know that. But the past year, highlighted by that day, may have put in some permanent changes to the oil industry. We're going to find out. Uh, Richard Masson is an executive fellow at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy. He joins us now to talk more about that day and the year that's unfolded since then. Richard, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's good to be here. So, yeah, let's go back to that day. I think it was uh, a year ago Tuesday where we actually slipped into negative territory on the pricing of oil. How did we get there? How did things actually end up being in negative territory for the world oil price? Well, I mean, it started with the pandemic, which was the big driver of, uh, you know, everybody starting to stay home and demand was falling. And then Russia and Saudi Arabia had a falling out about the best way to uh, manage the supply. 
And so Saudi Arabia decided to crank up its production uh, to make sure that it maintained market share. Mm -hmm. And so the whole global market was unsettled, very unsettled. And prices were kind of in the 20s going into that period in April of 2020. And so the the futures contract um, is, uh, you know, interesting in that you actually, if you hold a futures contract, long contract, have to take delivery of oil at Cushing um, in the U.S. at the day of settlement. And so what happened is the folks who had these contracts, they typically are financial players and they never have the infrastructure, the you know, the tank space to take physical delivery. They tend to sell those contracts before expiry and move to the next month. And in this instance, there was just so much pressure on the price and the tanks were so full at cushion because we didn't have much demand that nobody wanted to buy these contracts. And so the the buyers knew that the the holders of the contracts were under deep pressure mm-hmm. and they just kept pushing down the price and pushing down the price throughout the day until it went very negative. Uh, I remember that day the premier coming out and saying this is this is a disaster. This is a horrible thing saying it struck at the heart of the Canadian economy. Um did it cause change in the way that we we take a look at this industry? I mean, it was something that had never happened before. How um, earth-shaking was it for the oil and uh, gas sector in our country? Well, you know, there's kind of two, well, there's many parts, but two big parts to this sector. One is the producers um, who have, have, you know, ongoing production they have to sell. Mm-hmm. And then there's a big industry, a marketing industry. And, and they're traders who buy that oil, uh, they move it to to refiners who are going to use it. They often um, repackage it and blend it to meet refiners' needs. And they try to speculate on, will the price change between when the producer produces it and when it gets to the refiner? They may hold some inventories. So those marketing people are very sophisticated. And one of the things that was really uh, a challenge that day is, you know, those marketing folks who are all financial players didn't have the physical infrastructure to manage the risk that they faced. And so some people made a lot of money, some people lost a lot of money, but I think a lot of the marketing business really recognized we've, we can't take this kind of risk I- anymore if we don't have the physical ability to, to settle it. We, we have to make sure we get out um, well before a big problem like this could happen. Um, now, obviously, since that day, things have slowly recovered. We're actually in a pretty good position now, aren't we? Well, I think we're actually in a very good position right now. It's It's quite amazing how... Um, you know, that time scared the world, I guess is yeah. one way to look at it. And OPEC Plus, which is, you know, primarily Saudi Arabia and Russia, decided to work together to manage the market. They made a bold move. They said they would take 10 million barrels a day off the market. Demand, of course, had dropped by something like 18 million barrels a day at the worst. Um, but demand has picked up a lot and is almost back to where it was before the pandemic, uh, China leading the way as they've recovered. And so OPEC has, still has some spare capacity. They still are withholding um, production. But the, the great big inventories that we had that were filling up all the tanks yeah. have really come down. And so, you know, to see prices in the, in the mid-60s um, is very good for Alberta. Uh, one of the big keys for us is the differential between Western Canadian Select, which is our benchmark for heavy oil, and Western uh, WTI, West Texas Intermediate, is only about $10 right now. So there's a lot of demand for our heavy oil. Right now we have enough pipelines to get it to market. And so the producers here in Alberta are making uh, really good cash flow right now. Um, so we haven't seen um, 
the complete uh, reemergence from the pandemic in in much of the world. So I would assume that if we're already back to pre-pandemic levels, we've got to have some pretty um, optimistic viewpoints of where we're going to be in the next month and the next year, right? Things will continue to go up? I think that's the general view um, from everything I've been able to read is, you know, people, there's a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, travel is still going to be a bit of a question mark until, you know, planes start flying at the rate of before mm-hmm. and ships for cruises and things. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are driving in the meantime and, and using gasoline. Uh, you know, heavy, heavy trucks and trains have been working hard, lots of diesel consumption. And the economy, with all this stimulus, is probably going to bounce back pretty strong. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's been a big increase in, in consumption in 2021, and it's projected will be above uh, pre-COVID levels by the end of this year or into next, and, and probably have a couple of strong years after that. Um, so, in terms of the sector in our province, uh, what are we seeing with some of the big producers in Alberta? Are investors starting to feel more comfortable coming back into play? And uh, what are companies doing as, as we get back into more solid footing? Well, there's a couple parts to that. One is, you know, the companies really cranked down on their spending to make sure that they would be safe through um, that low low price period. And a lot of them haven't decided to increase their capital budgets yet. They're, they're really wary. And what they're doing instead is using this better cash flow to pay down debt and make sure their balance sheets are strong. The other big part for Alberta was we, we were... You know, growing production from the investment that had been made up to 2014 as as oil sands projects were completed, but we didn't have new pipelines. And Mm -hmm. so we were, you know, you recall we were um, restraining production. Alberta mandated that. So that production restraint has come off. Um, Right now, pipelines are about full. We're starting to move, you know, by rail, 200,000 barrels a day. Um, Companies, if they're confident that we're going to get line three replacement done later this year, Trans Mountain expansion done in a couple of years, then they're going to start to feel confident enough to start drilling new wells and expanding projects. So they're setting themselves up right now. They're paying down debt and strengthening their position. And if we can get the transportation issues resolved, I think we could have some solid growth over the next four or five years. Well, that is encouraging. Any barriers that you see that are in place that we need to resolve and resolve quickly? Is it primarily getting it to market? It is primarily getting it to market. That's been our biggest challenge uh, for the last number of years. And, of course, uh, we're not there yet. We're building pipelines. Line 3 is is nearly done. Um, But Trans Mountain still has a couple of years of construction to go. So we we do need to get those things done in a timely way and and make sure we don't have, you know, big delays for any reason. Um, And, you know, I think the... The environmental questions that we're all all facing right now will continue to be a challenge, and the oil sands companies are working to try and improve their performance. Um, Sonovas, CNRL, for example, have both said they want to get to net zero by 2050. And so we've got to find a way to square developing more of our resource with meeting Canada's climate change goals and the demand for oil in the world, because it's primarily driven by growth in Asia, and we're a good supplier for Asia as they as they increase their demand. All right, Richard, uh, good discussion and some good insight. Appreciate you taking some time with us this morning. Yeah, no problem, Shay. Thanks. Thank you very much. That is uh, Richard Masson, who is an executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.